There's a couple of books that came out about a decade ago that are still sitting on my garden bookshelf, and they're excellent reference books. One is called The Informed Gardener, and the other is called The Informed Gardener Blooms Again. They both explode a lot of garden myths, and they're written by Linda Chalker Scott. Well, thank you, Fred. Glad to be here. And Linda Chalker Scott works for Washington State University. She is a part of their horticulture department there. And as part of the WSU horticulture website, she has maintained uh, over the years a list of so-called truths that have damaged both plant and environmental health. Things that you would think would be just common sense that you've heard for years, so they must be right. Well, as the title of a 1970 Firesign Theater album once proclaimed, everything you know is wrong. And it's certainly very true when it comes to horticulture, as things change, plant names change, chemicals change, research changes. Well, your book is certainly a a compendium of information that is going to uh, make people scratch their heads. (laughs) Or or sometimes worse. Yes. But uh, just looking through the index, as far as uh, the the myths that you tackle, uh, there are several that I have uh, checkmarked that uh, uh, people may think, oh, that can't be true. But it is. And uh, first off, uh, you deal with the myth of drainage material in containers. And for years and years and years, we have heard about uh, when planting in containers, put some gravel or some broken up shards of a pot at the bottom to improve drainage. And it always struck me that wouldn't that actually clog up the drainage holes? But you take it a step further and look at the flow of water involved. You know, and Fred, I used to do the very same thing. In fact, many of these myths, if not all of them, were things that I used to do. And this is even when I was getting my PhD in horticulture. So it's it's not from lack of knowledge. It's it's um, just understanding um, a lot of a lot of these myths that have just come across um, as as being fact. And the drainage one is a really interesting one because it, intuitively it just makes sense. You know, to all of us, if you're thinking about water, you know, percolating through soil, that all of a sudden when it encompasses um, uh, the pebbles or, or pot shards, it's going to flow faster. And actually what happens is that it stops flowing and starts um, moving horizontally through that same soil that it's already in and creates this perched water table. And that would explain sometimes the white ring you might see around a ceramic pot. Exactly. But it's interesting that it actually inhibits the flow of water through the drainage holes. Yeah, and um, and the reason is is because water uh, moves really readily through um, soil or materials that have about the same particle size and pore size, and once it start, it it encounters something that's a little bit smaller or bigger, then it stops, and it's not until you get a lot of gravitational force behind it that continues to move downwards. And a lot of people complicate matters by having a few, if any, drain holes, and they're maybe too small, and then they put the pot straight on the ground, and that inhibits the outflow even more. Oh yeah. So it's always a good idea to raise your containers off the ground by a quarter inch or a half inch or so on a plant stand or some uh, container legs just to allow some airflow beneath it and also to help uh, keep those holes unplugged. Right. And so I guess the the, the bottom line would be to uh, whatever you fill the container with, be consistent. Exactly. And it makes it a little bit tough, you know, when you get down to those drain holes, if you're using some kind of uh, potting media that is going to uh, run through the draining holes. And what I've found is if you just take um, just a little piece of um, uh, old newspaper or tissue paper, something that's going to break down pretty quickly and just uh, to temporarily cover that hole, it'll hold the soil in. And then by the time the paper breaks down, you know, the soil is not going to be moving through there anymore. Another myth that you explode in your book, The Informed Gardener, has to do with landscape fabric. And, and for years, 
years and years and years, a lot of us used landscape fabric because, oh, it allows air and water to flow through. So just put down this uh, uh, plastic-like material and uh, cover it with mulch, and uh, you'll never have any weeds again. Well, and you know, it does have its purposes as a temporary barrier. In fact, um, I think that using it between rows in your vegetable garden is a great way to keep uh, that area, you know, weed-free. But the problem is, is that those holes that are in those fabrics stay clear for about a day, and then they start filling up with, you know, bits of soil and other materials, and then you're restricting uh, constantly the movement of water and air through that fabric. Um, Plus, it doesn't stop weeds from growing, as you've probably seen in older landscapes where there's been fabric down for a while. You know, dirt starts to settle on top of it, weed seeds blow in, and then you have a nice crop of weeds growing right on top of your fabric. And a lot of times, too, you'll see those weeds, and you'll go to yank them out, and you bring up half the landscape fabric (laughs) with it. That's right. Uh, do you have time for a little story, a oh, little sure. anecdotal story? Um, when we moved into the house we have right now, I'd gone out to, to work a new bed, put some perennials in, and I kept on hitting something hard about six inches below the surface of the soil. Finally dug it all up, and it was fabric that the previous owners had put down to, um, to keep the weeds out. And it was just completely colonized with bindweed and with horsetail. It was just a mess. And so it obviously wasn't keeping them out at all, um, but it was really inhibiting um, water movement earthworm movement, you know, anything that needs to go up and down in the soil uh, gets really bound up by these fabrics. One thing I have noticed in areas where I have put down a landscape fabric and then went to remove it, when I removed it, roots from nearby shrubs were close to the surface. Well, yeah, and that's and that's partially because they'll grow through, you know, where you have edge, seams of the fabric coming together, you know, they'll find those, those um, breaks and grow through them. And uh, more damaging is when you do pull those fabrics up, then you're yanking up all those fine feeder roots from your trees and shrubs. The option then is what? Well, the option is not to use them in the first place. But if you do have them down and you want to remove them and use something that's a little bit more um, root-friendly, uh, I would certainly not be removing it in the summer when you're really going to be having a lot of water stress anyway. You know, wait till wintertime when trees have gone dormant and you can remove those fabrics and replace them with a different kind of mulch. Yeah, and that's the key, isn't it, putting down an organic mulch? Exactly. And that can be uh, maybe wood chips or uh, your own trees chipped and shredded. Sometimes it's a good idea to invest in a chipper shredder rather than a rototiller because with a chipper shredder, you can uh, take those fallen tree limbs or prunings and make a really nice mulch. And you're not uh, importing somebody else's problems into your yard with their chipped wood. You know, I keep on saying that's what I want for Christmas is my very own shredder for that very, very reason, because I would love to be able to use, you know, the downed um, limbs and other cuttings and shred them up and and use them on my own landscape. Um, Barring that, I do use arborist wood chips for the very same reason, Um, although I don't know where they come from. At least they're local, and it's keeping them out of the landfill, and they make a really great organic mulch for a landscape. Do you let them age before you use them? I personally don't. Um, I've never had a problem, and sometimes with some of the um, work that I was doing with students, we didn't really have the luxury of letting them sit. We had to use them right away. And actually, I I love them because they smell so great when they're fresh, and I really like working with them then. Um, A lot of the concerns with wood chips in terms of, uh, well, would they have, you know, if you have diseased woods chipped up, is that going to be a problem? Um, Research has shown that no, um, you don't transmit disease from diseased wood down through many inches of mulch down to roots. And um, I, I, 
you know, I always caution people, you know, if you're concerned about pests or pathogens, now by all means, let them sit on site for a while and compost. But I've seen no damage from anything using fresh chips. And being a lazy kind of gardener, I really like your advice when it comes to using wood chips as a mulch as far as you have to take the weeds or get the weeds down before you put the mulch on, obviously. But what I like is you say to prune or mow the perennial weeds at the root crown because pulling them out destroys the soil structure. Exactly. And you're just like me. I'm also a lazy gardener and a cheap gardener. So anything I can do to save myself some labor, I do. Yeah. And if you wait until things are really starting to go dormant anyway, and then you're mowing them down, they they have less of a chance of coming back. For years, we have heard some rather unsound advice. If you have clay soil, add sand to improve its texture. But it seems to me that's a recipe for making bricks. That's exactly right. That's how you make concrete, isn't it? Yeah. How did that ever start? It's, it's, it's partially because of what the perfect soil consists of. And if you look at a soil triangle, you know, the ideal loamy soils are a certain mixture of sand and clay and silt. And that's what makes a perfect loam. And so if somebody has a landscape that maybe isn't as perfect, you know, they're thinking, well, the easiest way to solve that is, is to add, you know, what, what they're missing. But unfortunately, most of us don't know exactly how much uh, we would need. And the problem is, especially with a clay soil, that you have to add about 50% more volume of sand just to get that to a more sandy texture. If you add just a little bit of sand, um, it creates, uh, as you say, adobe. And so you'd have to just add an awful lot of sand to really change the texture. And and then the problem is is that you know you're you may you may understand the boundaries of your property, but your trees and shrubs roots don't, and um, they'll continue to grow outside your your boundary. And if you've changed the texture, you know dramatically from what the surrounding soil is like, you're going to again have a problem with water movement, air movement, and root movement. We see that a lot with people who will dig a hole to plant a tree or a shrub, and instead of using their native soil, they'll go out and buy some premium potting soil and throw that in the hole and and plant their tree or shrub in that. But as you just pointed out, what happens? is the surrounding water will flow into that nice, loose soil, and it's uh, like a constantly flooded zone. Exactly, and, and, and it dries out faster, too. So in the summer, when you've got the, the, the um, drier um, time of year, you're going to have that area evaporating water faster, and the surrounding soil doesn't. So um, the roots are exposed either to con- constant drought or constant flooding. Um, and it's not a great way to get your plants established. In your book, The Informed Gardener, you also tackle an, another myth, and, and it's one that I can't believe is, is still around, yet people will buy vitamin B1. And for uh, you talk to anybody, and you know, they'll describe how they put in a new tree or a shrub or a plant, and they say, oh, yeah, and I added vitamin B1 to reduce transplant shock. Right. Well, that's what marketing will do for you, and, and yeah. especially when we, we tend to think of things in the context of, of what we do for ourselves. And, and, you know, if we take vitamin supplements, many of us do take vitamin B supplements. And so you just kind of extrapolate that and think, well, it must be good for the plants, too. And what people don't realize is plants make their own. So they certainly don't need us to add that. It's just an extra cost um, and waste of resources um, to, to add those kinds of um, uh, fertilizers to plants. And uh, it isn't the vitamin B1 in that bottle that's probably doing your plant any good. There's uh, small amounts of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and perhaps some micronutrients that are the real keys to that. Right. And sometimes there's also um, uh, a hormone, um, usually an auxin. It might be IAA or NAA or something like that. And those actually do have a stimulatory effect on rooting. So that that type of um, 
uh, rooting hormone or transplant hormone actually does do some good. And so those mixtures of um, transplant elixirs, if they happen to have a little bit of that hormone, they will have an effect, but certainly not the B1 that does it. Right, exactly. So if you think thiamine is going to help reduce uh, transplant shock, I can save you a lot of money. Just go to the grocery store, (laughs) buy some vitamin B1, the generic brand, and throw a tablet in the... (laughs) If you pick up a copy of The Informed Gardener, you're going to find all sorts of exploded myths, uh, the myth of wound dressings. Uh, we talked about uh, hot w- we didn't talk about hot weather watering, but briefly it talks about there really is no damage to a plant if you uh, water your plant on a hot afternoon, is there? As long as you're not using salt water, there's absolutely no damage, and you're just going to reduce the shock to it um, of, of being drought-stressed. Um, what usually happens is when people do water, they're watering when they sing wilt, and then, of course, of course, the, those leaves have been uh, you know, fatally wilted. They're going to develop brown edges. And so people tend to blame the watering rather than the, the, the lack of water for that brown development. But it's not the water that's burning the leaves. And it's, uh, uh, what I like is a lot of your solutions apply mulch. <laughs> I like that. Yep, I do too. You know, a a, a decent, healthy soil, you're going to have decent, healthy roots and a decent, healthy plant. Linda Chalker-Scott, author of two great books, The Informed Gardener and The Informed Gardener Blooms Again. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Well, thanks, Fred. I enjoyed it.